All right, if you would turn with me back to John chapter 10. I was there last week. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus said this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the, sh- of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Amen. Let's have a word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this time that you can speak to us. And we look to you and we, we set our hearts and minds to hear from you as we look into your word, as we look to you for instruction, for encouragement, for direction. We commit our hearts and minds to you and we ask that you would guide us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. Last time, we looked at the character and the things that Jesus illustrated to us as who he was as the good shepherd. The one who has and has been given lawful access to God's sheep, his, his people. And we saw where his voice is that voice that the sheep hear when he comes to the sheep pen. When he comes to the pen and he, they hear his voice, their ears perk, perk up and they're listening because it's their shepherd. They understand that it's the one who owns them. It's the one who cares for them. It's the one who is going to lead them somewhere for their well-being. We also saw where he calls his own sheep by name. He's that acquainted with his sheep that those of us in here who are his sheep, he knows us by name. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. He's aware of your comings and your goings. He's aware of when you lay down, when you rise up. He's aware of your thoughts before you think them. He's aware of things you're going to say before you say them. He's our great shepherd. He's our good shepherd. He's the one that we hear his voice and we allow him to lead us. We follow him. He calls himself the good or the noble shepherd. And why is he the good shepherd? Why is he the noble one when we compare him to the hirelings? Because Jesus 
out of his great love and concern for his own, would place himself in harm's way so that the sheep could live. And we know that that entailed all the way to the cross. He gave his life. He laid down his life so that we as his sheep could have life, and that more abundantly. We know from the Gospel of John in chapter 1, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Chapter 11, we know when he was at Lazarus' tomb, what did he tell Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that you and I can know the only true God. What a statement. That's, it's immense. Suddenly, like Rob said, suddenly some of the trials and things we go through minuscule, aren't they? The idea that the sheep would lay down his life so that we could have eternal life, which is entailing us knowing him and knowing his Father, the only true God. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So when we think about Jesus and what he means to us, Jesus and what he's done for us. We understand him to be our good shepherd. We understand, or I hope you do, and I hope every day that you ponder and consider things from his word, that it becomes a greater understanding of actually what you have been delivered from, where you've come from, and what he's provided for you. It's got to be renewed in some ways. It can't become the ho-hum, yes, I know that already. It never can be that. It always needs to be refreshed. To me, I like to, like I've said before, I like to preach the gospel to myself. It may seem kind of silly, but when I hear myself preaching the gospel in my own ears, I'm reminded, if I do it on a daily basis, I'm reminded daily of what's been done for me. Do I face my day differently? Yes. Do I come to an understanding that he is with me, he's guiding me, he's leading me? Or do I just face the day as if it's another day, and when something happens or occurs or the other shoe drops, I guess I'll just deal with it. I don't want to live my Christian life like that. I certainly hope you're not looking to live yours like that. But we looked at the giver of life. We looked at the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But we also saw that as Jesus is the light of the world, he's the one that gives us exposure to our own lives. He gives us a clear perception of things in reality in this world. He should open our eyes, make things clear. Chapter 9, he opened the blind man's eyes. 
And at the end of that chapter, he says, I came that the blind may see and the seeing be made blind. I hope you're one of those where your eyes now see because there's something extremely horrible about being spiritually blind and not seeing. Jesus came to give us that light, give us that seeing, give us that perception, that understanding. But we also see in this chapter who else has a, as a part, is a participant in, in this world we live in. We, we walk through life. We are his sheep. Yes, we say we follow him, we believe in him, we trust in him. There is another, isn't there? And he's called the thief. And just because we're his sheep and we've been forgiven and we're blood washed and we've been delivered from darkness and death and we've been given all these good things, does he lay down and quit? Does he remain the thief? Does he remain the one who has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy, and take what is unlawfully his? Everything the thief comes after, according to this chapter, it's unlawful for him to take it. Yet, for some of us, for some Christians... Is it possible they're being robbed? It grieves me to think that after all we know about the Good Shepherd and what he's done to give us life, that any one of us in this room, including myself or anybody we know, would at some point give access to the thief to come into your life and steal from you the very thing Jesus paid such a high price for. He is relentless. He has not given up. I give him no glory, but I'm not going to ignore the fact that the thief comes but for to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, Jesus, his mission on earth. Remember when he, after he was tempted in the wilderness and he came back into Nazareth and he entered the synagogue and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's where we live today, isn't it? That's, that, we're on that this side of that. Jesus came to do all that for humanity. He came to bring liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. That was his mission. That's what he did, this whole earthly mission. You read the Gospels and that's what you see, right? <clears throat> you see a compassionate Lord expressing through his very humanity what God is like. And what God is like is to set people like you and I free, to see us well, 
to see us not captive, to see us set free in every way. He didn't do it <clears throat> part way, and the rest is up to you and I. <clears throat> he did it all. And the day we allow something in our lives to allow the thief to come in and steal what Jesus has bought and paid for for us, we need to be aware of that and we need to be ashamed and we need to repent. We really need to understand that the cost paid for what we have for life from death is extreme. I want to ask you, how bad does a person really have to be that the Son of God has to come here himself and die in your place so that you can now have fellowship with the Father? How bad do you have to be? Bad, right? That's serious bad. There was nothing in any of our lives that was so trivial that we, God would just say, well, you know, no, nah, it's all right, I'll let that one go. Where we were at was so corrupt and so bad that he had to send his only son to this earth to die in our place. I like to remind myself of that. I really do. But the sheep, they have a relationship to the shepherd, don't they? We read that their, their relationship to him is that they hear his voice, they follow, and they're led by him, aren't they? He's, up and, he's given us the path. He's given us the way to go, hasn't he? And we're told to follow in his footsteps. Why? Because he's leading us off a cliff? No. He's leading us to a place that's far greater than you and I probably can imagine. We're going somewhere, aren't we? We're being led somewhere. There may be days when you're thinking, I'm not being led anywhere into more trouble, more trials, more testing, and more tribulation, and it seems like my shepherd has gone off and I'm on my own. I know we've all been there. He's never left us. He's never forsaken his own. We are still the sheep of his hand. Now, they hear his voice, they follow and are led, but there's one thing I want to say about that. There shouldn't be a soul in this room that is following another person's testimony. I've always seen that as devastating to some people. I'm not saying don't follow the example of a person's faith and their life when it's lived right. But we can't follow somebody else's testimony. You need to hear God for yourself. God has a path and a way of leading each one of us in the same direction, but we're all different, aren't we? He's never going to lead you into sin. He's always going to lead you into paths of righteousness. I remember the illustration given years ago about a family taking a walk and they had a boy and a girl and they're walking and they're going home right from wherever they were at the, the store or wherever and the girl is holding mommy and daddy's hand and she's just behaving herself and just just following right along and what's the boy doing 
running, jumping, splashing, got to crawl up in the bushes on the walls. I'm jumping over fences. He's muddy. He's dirty. He's got his pants ripped. Did they all get to the same place? They all got there, didn't they? Because the father has a way of taking that son who has some sort of need to go run and jump and get in trouble and get dirty and still get us there. I just, I enjoyed that. Now, that doesn't give you the right to go out and get dirty, you young people. You know, I know there's plenty of mud puddles out there, but your parents would like your clothes to stay clean. But you get the illustration. But the followers of the Good Shepherd are promised something, aren't, they? aren't we? We're promised life. We're promised green pastures. We're promised to be led by still waters. We're promised to have our life restored or revived. He's leading us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Life is that which Jesus came to give us. At one point, everyone in this room, and there may still be some right now, who don't have that life in them. They walk in darkness. They live in death, separated from God. Yet Jesus came to end that separation, didn't he? And here we sit here we have the privilege of coming here, worshiping the Lord for 20 minutes. Eternity is going to be a lot longer than that. 20 minutes. We worship the Lord. Then we come and hear the word and we pray and we trust that God would speak to our hearts and lead us and guide us. But there's one other, and that's the thief. The thief has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. It's the one who is looking to take what is not lawfully his. You know, just because all of us in here have started on the path to green pastures and still waters does not mean he ceases his activity, does it? He has one purpose and one purpose only. To destroy your life. And I hate that. I hate that with a passion. That there is one out there who has the whole world under its sway. Who has got people bound. Who has got people captive. Who have people blind. People are oppressed. People are lost. People have no direction. Because of who? The thief. We should have such a violent hatred of the thief that we guard our lives with an intensity like we have no idea we've ever done in the past, maybe. I'm not talking about setting up a whole set of you know, let's, let's make it ten commandments and then let's add a bunch more to them. But the point of it is, one is out there to steal from you. And he's relentless. And he's persistent. And he's deceptive. And he's subtle. 
Sometimes he's in your face. Sometimes you don't know where he's coming from. I like the idea that I have a good shepherd that knows all of those schemes and wiles. And he's given us a way by which we can overcome all of them. So we know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You know, lest we think that we, because we're Christians, because we follow the Good Shepherd, because we've made a profession of faith, because we are standing on a promise of God for us. Let us never think that the devil, the thief, can never have any access. Because when Jesus addressed the seven churches in Revelation, in chapter 3, we read about the church of Sardis. And the church of Sardis was told this, You have a name that you were alive, but you're dead. What a rebuke. That would hurt our feelings in here, wouldn't it? We would think, well, no, we're alive. What did Jesus see? That he could say, you have a name. You're presenting everything just right. It looks like you're, on, you're, you're there. You're alive. But what I see is, you're dead. You need to strengthen that little bit that remains. Lest it die also. So maybe you're in here and you're going, you know what? I've cast a lot of things aside. Things I knew better. Direction that I should have followed. Instruction from my parents, instruction from my pastor, instruction from other godly people in my life. And I've kind of ignored that. And now I'm down a path and I know I'm being robbed. I know there's death in my life. There is a solution. Repent and turn back to the good shepherd who gives us life. Hold on to that which remains and strengthen yourself. The thief, all through Scripture, he's described in some of the most unsavory terms you and I could maybe think of. A serpent. He presents himself through men in wool, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Or an angel of light. A roaring lion. A deceiver, a murderer, the wicked one. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is our adversary. Today we think of a thief, and you just put it in practical terms, like we live in this world. So what do we have as a thief? Pickpockets. Well, that's not a big deal, I know, but they exist, right? Pickpockets. Someone who just wants to take what's unlawfully his and just take it off of you. Very sneaky. Very stealthy. That's why whenever I'd go into a big city, you know, you are got your wallet, and you're, you know, you're just... Because you're just thinking, I'm going to get on a bus or subway. I'm going to get pickpocketed. I don't want to lose my stuff. So what do you do? You guard what belongs to you, don't you? But a pickpocket looks to steal. How about a scam artist? We don't think, you know, they're stealers. You start thinking about these terms. Doesn't it disgust you? That there are people that can take and, and take 
a little old lady's entire life savings with no guilt, no conscience, run a scam, and take people of their entire life savings. That's the most they can take, isn't it? Worldly things, but still, they take, they steal. How about a mugger? You hear about them in the big cities. I don't hear about it in Shelbyville too often, I'm glad. I feel pretty safe walking the sidewalks of Shelbyville at night. But in some cities, you can be mugged. Pretty violent, isn't it? You're just going to be taken. You're just going to, you know, give me your money. That's what a robber does. That's what a thief does. How about somebody who hacks your personal information and steals from you your personal identity? That's recent, isn't it, as of the technological age? And we think of a thief or a robber as someone who intrudes into somebody's house, breaks in, and takes whatever they want. And for some of you in here, I think that's probably happened. Very disturbing, isn't it, to think that a thief would come in and take what doesn't belong to him from you. Well, this is what the thief does. His devices are varied. His wiles and schemes are deceptive. We know the story of the Garden of Eden. He approaches Eve. Did God say you could have, you could eat of none of the trees of the garden? The devil likes to use all kinds of fancy, corrupt, and twisted words. And Eve says, well, no, we can eat of all of them except one. But what does the devil do? When he's going to deceive you and I, when he wants to get something from you, when he wants to steal from you, what is he going to do? He's going to say to Eve who said, listen, if we eat of that tree, we will die. And the devil does what? He minimizes and trivializes sin. He makes it so little that he says, surely you're not going to die. Go ahead. Do whatever you're going to do. Look how good that looks. The temptation is so great. It's a beautiful tree. Surely you're not going to die. Come on. And the whole human race plunges into darkness and death and despair. Paul was concerned when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It can still happen today. We know that Jesus warned about false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. And we know that Satan himself can transform himself into an angel of light. We need to be on guard, don't we? We need to be sober. We need to be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. I think sometimes, well, not sometimes, it's inevitable that everyone in this room who God, the Good Shepherd, has called you by name, 
you heard your name and you responded. And you began on this journey, and everyone in this room understands that just because you have a promised provision in your life, the promise of eternal life, the promise of green pastures, the promise of, of being taken care of, your needs being met, the promise of health and healing, you know all these promises are there, and yet things arise that tend to make that look like that's not going to happen. There's things that arise as far as trials and temptations and tribulations in this world that we have never been told would go away. We were never promised that along this path there wouldn't be some bumps in the road, were we? We were never promised that it was leave the sheep pen and be in the pasture. We were told that in this world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials. You're going to have testings and trials and tribulations and things that are necessary. I don't like to talk about trials. I don't like talking about the devil. But I think once in a while, I like to expose these things. Let's lay it out there. Let's make it as bright as day. Let's just say it how it is, right? But we all face tribulations and trials. They're not there to kill us. Believe me. If you would turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sure we know this scripture, but I'd like to read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. I'd like to read a bit before that. Um, let's, let's start in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Another reference, I'm sorry. I know where it is. Turn over and then go to verse five or chapter five. Chapter five and verse six. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, I don't know about you, but you read First Peter and you begin to understand that when 
is the lion's roar seemingly the loudest? It's usually when people are under the pressure of suffering or persecution or things that seem to be opposed to the very promise that we're looking for. So these people are looking for the return of Christ, the deliverance from all of these oppressors in the world. They're looking for, they're looking for a promise from him, and yet their world seems to be coming apart. They're facing a fiery trial. But he's saying, listen, the lion's roar is going to be loudest when the things seem the toughest, don't they? When everything's going well and a lion roars, you go... Yeah, whatever. But when you're under it, when you're facing grievous trials and you're being put to the test to prove that your faith is genuine, the lion gets pretty loud, doesn't it? It gets real loud. We all know that. But he's telling us that if persecution ever came our way and disturbed our lifestyle here, we can't allow the roaring lion to shake us off our path. We have to stay steadfast in the faith, being sober and vigilant. Because the roaring lion is the same one that's coming to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. You know, in the world we live in, things can arise sometimes suddenly. Everyone in this room, I'm sure, at some point has had something just suddenly put them to the test, caused them to be unsettled, caused them even to be fearful. Things that arise that cause us in, in this natural world, we see things coming apart and crumbling or, or things in your personal life that just suddenly cause you distress and maybe even some fear. What can we learn? I read it not that long ago, but remember the, the time when the disciples and Jesus got in a boat to go across the sea in Matthew 8? He says, now when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose. They weren't counting on that, were they? Great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us! We are perishing. And he said to them, why are you so fearful? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the seas. And there was great calm. Let me ask you this. When the waves were coming in the boat and filling it with water, when the seas were so rough that they thought they were going to die and they were afraid, was he never outside of that boat with them? Was he always in the boat with them? He was always there. We even heard that this morning. He was in, even during that turbulent time of fearfulness and distress, we are perishing. Why are you afraid? I am right here with you in the midst of this storm. Oh, ye of little faith. 
He was always there with them. Remember when Peter walked on the water? Remember the one time, or maybe more than one time, that you actually heard from the Lord and you stepped out on your own. You stepped out in faith and you thought, you know what? I'm going to trust him for this. I'm going to trust him. I've heard him. I'm going to, you know, Peter stepped out of the boat. I'm going. I'm going. And the wind and the waves and all that come up. And what did Peter look at? What did he see? It says he saw the wind was boisterous. And what was he? He was afraid. And he began to sink, and he cried out the same thing they did in the boat. Lord, save us. Save me. And it says, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. We can't look around the room. We can't look around our lives and go, you know what? I stepped out onto the water, and it got turbulent, and the winds were against me, and I got afraid, and I cried out to Jesus from where I'm at, and he came and he saved me. Did he test Peter's faith? He sure did. Did Peter's faith sort of give way at some point? Doesn't that happen to us on occasion? Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand and rescued Peter. What kind of a God is this? He rebuked him. He corrected him. He challenged him. Yes. Where, where did you doubt? Why? I was right here. I called you out here. I called you to step out of the boat. Why are you afraid? But he did save him. Psalm 23 tells us that, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Is there ever a time when those who are his sheep and those who are hearing his voice and following him, wherever it leads, whatever the trial, whatever the pressure, whatever the, the wind, the waves, whatever's coming up against our lives, is there ever a time he's not there with us? Does he forsake us? He wants to test us. We need to be tested. We need disturbances in our life sometimes to see just really whether, we not, whether or not we really have a genuine faith. But would it be okay then to go, Lord, I failed. I missed it. But you're still with me. You're still there to gather me up from the shipwreck of fear and trembling and what we would consider quitting. And you're there to put us back together and get us back on the path. Because if it was up to all of us to live a perfect faith, there would be so many sheep on the side of this path, there wouldn't be any left following them. God wants for us to make it. 
His desire is not to put you to the test and cause so much turmoil in your life or in this church that we all just crumble and fold and quit. That is the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God has bought and paid for. Everything that belongs to us as an individual and as a church. The devil is out there. And he's looking for that place where we give him opportunity to steal. We don't have to. Turn over to James 1. You're not too far. James chapter 1. You know, in none of those instances, in none of the trials and tribulations and the shakings that we go into, right? None of the things that we face as a church or as an individual, none of those testings and trials, none of those things give the devil opportunity to steal from us. It's not the testing and the trial. It's not during the testing, the trial, the shaking that the theft occurs. But sometimes it is how we respond. In Matthew ch or James chapter 1, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. But let that patience or endurance have its perfect work or its perfecting work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials or temptations. Count it altogether joy. Count it pure joy. You're not going to do that unless you know something about this test, about this shaking, about this trial. You won't do it unless you're fully confident and aware of the fact that you know that it's the trying of your faith that produces perseverance or endurance. But then you need to let that endurance in that testing and time of trial have its perfecting work. It's doing something in us, isn't it? It's the good shepherd leading you. He's bringing you somewhere. I don't want any tests and trials in my life. I don't want to face anything hard. Do you? Maybe not. I'm not looking for trials and temptations and testings. But James here says, count it all joy when you fall into things come up and put you to the test knowing this that the genuineness of your faith is what he's after he's looking for that endurance because only those who endure till the end will be saved he loves you enough to test you to make sure you're going to make it if you slip and fail if you find out that your faith is not as genuine as you thought, praise the Lord, I can start again. I 
can, I can ask Him for wisdom. What, what am I missing? What do I need? What am I not hearing? He loves us enough to test us. I think my kids, when they were growing up, they hated me at times. Because I put them to the test. Now, I'm not doing that for you. You figure it out. You do it. I'm not going to do everything for you. I want you to face it and go, what do I do here? But what am I counting on when I do that? As in you as a parent. Not meanly. Not viciously. You wouldn't do that as a parent, would you? Unless you're a... Anyway. But we know that Things in life need to be put to the test. Our faith. Because it would be, to me, devastating and heartbreaking to think that someone in here never really truly had genuine faith. And they only assumed that by associating with the rest of the sheep, they were going to make it. That if I just come to church often enough and I sing like everybody else and I learn the jargon or the words like everybody else and I hang around with the sheep who I think are going to make it that one day they find out they never had genuine faith and they face the judge says I never knew you But then in James chapter 1, and we go down to verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is full grown, you've been robbed. You've been robbed. Brings forth death. The very opposite of what Jesus came to give. So what is he saying here? First he's saying, count it all joy. And here he's saying, you need to endure temptation. So let's say in the midst of a trial, in the midst of something that seems contrary to what you believe God has promised for you, the good shepherd is leading you somewhere, and you see the provision of promise there, and yet circumstances begin to contradict that. The temptation is to do what? Be drawn away by your own desires. The temptation is to do it your way. The temptation is to take another course out of that painful situation, isn't it? But he's saying we need to endure temptation. We need to learn that there are things in our lives, desires and lusts, that who gets a hold of? and entices the thief. Because if you and I are put to the test, and suddenly what comes to the surface 
is, I can't do this, I won't do this. And these don't have to be brief trials. I mean, some of us in here, you know what it's like to have something be long and drawn out. Where is the fulfillment of this? We're all waiting for Jesus to return, aren't we? And if it goes another thousand years, what's that to us? But if we're looking for him to return tomorrow and it doesn't happen, the temptation is then to begin to do things your own way. Find another course. Take things into your own hands. Follow your own lusts and desires. And that's where we get robbed. Because the devil then takes those desires and those lusts that we may have and he knows how to attach himself to that and entice. Yeah. Go ahead, eat of that tree. Watch that movie. Look at that on the internet. Read this. Taste that. Smoke this. Drink that. What's the big deal, the devil would say. And the whole time the thief is out there to rob you. If you don't think the devil is real... You really need to talk to somebody because he's out there and he's out there to take everything he can. He says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Is sin ever trivial? Sin is never trivial, is it? Oh, but, but I'm, I'm one of his sheep. That's probably what the church of Sardis was saying. Yeah, but I'm the, we're the church. And you're dead. Is there ever a time when in the midst of a short trial or a long drawn out trial where we're waiting, believing, trusting, and holding out that in the midst of that we realize that there are lusts and desires of our own where we're looking for an avenue out. We're looking for another situation. We're looking for another solution. We begin to question the provision that God has made for us. We begin to doubt His goodness and His love. The devil's waiting for that. But he does tell them, verse 5, that if any of you lack wisdom, in the midst of trials and tribulations and hardships, you lack wisdom, ask. God's not stingy about it, is he? He gives to all and upbraideth not. And we talk about our lusts and desires and we think in terms of any kind of lust. I mean, the Bible talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Things that we're told not to love. And yet there's still lust, there's still desires, there's still cravings. So we're not just, you know, we think of lust, we're not talking about physical gratification, but we are talking about something that you desire, something that you crave after something that in the midst of where God said he would provide 
and you face a trial that seemingly presents circumstances contrary to that, your lust kicks in, doesn't it? That's where we get into trouble. We haven't learned something if that's what happens. But he's asking, he says to ask for wisdom. Well, the only book I can really think of that mentions wisdom more than once was Proverbs. If you would turn back there, please. Proverbs chapter 1. And I'm going to brief the whole book, and then we'll be done. Now we're going to skip some stuff and maybe pick up some of it next time. But Proverbs. You read the first seven chapters of Proverbs. And you begin to realize, and you young people, you old people, and you older people, we all know at different levels of our life that the more we gave ourselves to wisdom and understanding, the more things in life that came up, you knew what to do. You understood something about it. When you neglect all that, you're left in a pitiful state. Because you go through life just being tossed to and fro. But in Proverbs 1 and verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And where do we start? Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, when I was growing up, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. But yet, my parents who I gave respect and honor to most of the time. I can't say all the time. Spoke things to me when I was growing up as a young child and gave me advice that I didn't always think about every day. I didn't rehearse these things they tell me. And these are unregenerate parents giving their child advice. Why? Because they knew one day I was going to face a circumstance. They weren't going to be there. And the advice they gave me would preserve my life. It would give me discretion. It would give me understanding. It would teach me. Like the one thing I can remember, one of the things they told me was, if you're with a group of people, I mean, this is going to just be, this is unregenerate, right? If you're with a group of people and they're about to go do something wrong, you need to get away as fast as possible because you're going to be accounted as guilty as they are. And you know, that would come up in my life. And I'd see things going on. I'm like, I'm out of here. Did that preserve me? It did. This is what Proverbs, this is the wisdom that the Father's giving us. These are the things that we keep and we look at and we ponder and we hold on to desperately because when things come up in life, 
If you don't have any of this wisdom and understanding, you're drawn away like a simpleton. You're taken by your whim, by your lust, by your desires. You're carried away because you have nothing. You, in this room, have the privilege over all these years of hearing good, prudent wisdom from people who know better, who understand where you young people are at right now. Because believe it or not, we've all been there. From the oldest of the old down to people like me. But we've been there. Do we have nothing to say? Maybe not. You judge. But the Word of God has all we need. It's that which we look to. For chapter 2. Verse 10. It says, when wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Sounds like someone's coming to take something from you. Sounds like if we're not the ones giving ourselves and keeping hold of the very words of wisdom, somebody's leading you down a path of darkness, looking to take something from you. If you'd bear with me, I'm going to move down to chapter 7. I just There's a chapter 7, you're probably all familiar with it, but it presents to us a vivid picture. It prevents, presents to us a vivid picture who allow their lusts and desires to control them. Those who have no wisdom. Those who don't keep guard and bind and write those words from their father. They don't see the words from their father as precious and necessary. But in verse 1 he says, My son... Now, this is a father talking to a son. This isn't a boss talking to an employee. This isn't a master talking to a slave. This is your father talking to you as his child. Keep my words. Treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live. And the law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your nearest king, kin, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Is that how we all in here, including you young people, do you hear the words of your father and do you see them as so precious that they're the apple of your eye, that you're writing them on the tablets of your heart, that you're binding them on your fingers, that you're making sure that those things are so precious to you so that when the temptations to sin, to quit, 
to be robbed, when those things come up in your life, do you have something in you that directs you? Something in you that rises up and the Spirit says, no, you know better than that. Something that comes up from within that you've been taught by your Heavenly Father that keeps you from sin. Keeps you from being enticed and lured away from the very life that you've been given. There are so many things in this corrupt and vile world that want to destroy your life. Yet we need to be those who see wisdom and understanding and the words that we have from our Heavenly Father is that precious. Those things that we will have when we need them. Just like I did as a child. The things that my parents told me. I didn't wake up every morning thinking of that or thinking about the things they told me, but when certain situations came up, I had something. It compelled me. It preserved me. It kept me. Because I should be dead today. I should be dead. But words spoken to a child's heart kept them, kept him, and preserved him. In verse 6, chapter 7, it says, For I look out the window of my house, I looked through my lattice, and I saw the simple. I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding. Here's Solomon. At least I believe it's Solomon looking out his window and he's making an observation. And what does he see? He sees a young man who's simple and devoid of understanding. After all that in the first six chapters and he made no application and he's now neglected the teachings of his father neglected the teachings of his pastor, neglected the commandments of his mother, and he's just, never mind, they're not important to me. He's now what's called simple and devoid of understanding. So here the father, the king, looks through his window and he observes this, this young person. In verse 8, it says, passing along the street near her corner, he sees him passing along the street near her corner and he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Here's a young person. Here's an old person, devoid of understanding, being led by his desires, by his lust, and he's heading down a path because he kind of knows what's down this road. And he's looking to find satisfaction in some way other than the prescribed way his father commanded. But it turns out to be the twilight, the dark of night, the blackness. Sounds like blindness to me. It sounds like a person devoid of understanding is rolling his eyes back in his head and just going. So this king, this father is observing this 
simpleton, devoid of understanding, heading down a path in the dark, hidden. I'm not being seen. Nobody's seeing this. I'm just taking a walk. I'm just out walking. But huh, I like this street. Let me go down here. And now it's dark. My perception is clouded. Verse 10. Lo and behold, there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. Here this simpleton, lack of understanding and devoid, has now put himself in a place where his lusts and his desires can be fulfilled. Someone, something... If you're led by your lusts and desires, unwilling to follow the precepts and the wisdom and understanding that you have been taught, will find yourself accosted by the very thing you're pretending not to find. You run across a woman who's dressed provocatively. Let's face it, any lust we have, when we want to fulfill it, it doesn't matter. Money, things, people, all these things that we desire. We've been given a prescribed way in which God said he would provide them all. And yet, a person devoid of understanding will allow himself down a road, down a path, into darkness. And guess who's there to meet you? has an attractive appearance, very deceptive, loud and rebellious. Here I am. Here I am. I found you. You found me. Verse 13, So she caught him and kissed him with an impotent face and said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vow, so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. Sounds pretty bold now, doesn't it? Head down a path, wind up in the dark, blinded to what you're about to face, out comes that very thing to meet you, and gets awful personal real fast, doesn't, doesn't it? Here I am! I found you. That's convenient. I was just taking a walk. Suddenly, huh, here's the solution to my problem. Look at how attractive this is. This will be my solution to... I, I've been, you know, I, I don't have any understanding. I'm devoid of that. I don't understand how God really wants to provide for all of my needs. So I took a walk. And now, I'm being addressed by someone or something who claims to have found me. No shame. A guiltless face. 
one who has paid her vows, one who has done her religious duty, and now, guess what? I've done my religious duty. Come on now. We're good to go. Verse 16, I've spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey, has taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home on the appointed day. Sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? Don't we hear something like the pleasures of sin for a season? Awful good looking, isn't it now? You know, I was just taking a walk. And out meets me the very thing that now appears to be what will meet my needs. And I've been accosted now by this thing. And you know what? No big deal. I've been to church, sang some songs. I'm good to go. You know what? Everything looks really attractive here, doesn't it? It's all looking good. And you know what else? My husband's gone. There's no way we're going to get caught. What's the big deal? I can give in to my lust here, can I? I can be drawn away and enticed. What's the big deal? I'm not going to be caught. The husband's not coming back for a long time. The appointed day is a long way off, isn't it? So you know what? You got time to sin. You didn't hear that from me. But that's what the devil would say. The appointed day... You got time. You got time. Verse 21. And with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. Yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Persistent. Constant. This is a person who's led by his desires and lusts. In verse 22, immediately he goes in after her. But how does he go in? How does a person who allows their desires and lusts be enticed by the devil, be enticed by temptation and things like this, what does he do? He immediately yields himself. Well, I mean, I'm gone this far. But how is he being immediately led? As what? An ox goes to the slaughter. I've never watched an ox go to a slaughter. I have seen some cows go to slaughter. They have no idea what's coming their way, do they, Paul? They have no idea. They're just a dumb animal being led to the slaughter. They are going to their demise. They don't even know what's coming. An ox to the slaughter. Or a fool to the correction of the stocks. A fool. Imagine a drunken fool in a stupor being led to a place where he's going to be held in fetters, bound. 
waking up the next day and going, what have I done? I'm now in bondage. I'm now locked in the stocks. The cords of sin have entwined me. Verse 23, till an arrow struck his liver and as a bird hastens to the snare. It's like hunting a deer. You think a deer knows when an arrow's coming to kill it? If you're a bow hunter, no bow hunters in here. How about a bird who sees the bait that doesn't care, doesn't even see the trap set? Just right to the bait. I'm going. Boom! Caught in a snare. An arrow through the liver. End of that verse. He did not know it would cost him his life. He did not know that the desires and cravings and lust in his life, unchecked by God's wisdom, he was being led to his death and didn't even know it. So what does Solomon say? Verse 24. Now listen. There, now therefore listen to me, my children. Listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain by her were strong men. To yield to temptation in the midst of your trials, to find another solution to the needs of your life because of your lusts and desires, I don't care how strong you think you are. You're no match for seduction for deception. You need to be wise people. So the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you may have life and that more abundantly. So I ask you, everybody in here, are you hearing his voice? Are you following him? Or are you just one of those who are associating with the sheep who are? Is the Lord dealing with you today? Because today is the day that if the Lord is dealing with you about anything in your life that is leading you to death, today is the day for you to think about it. Allow the Lord to deal with you. Repent. Set your heart to know the right ways. Don't think you're that strong that you can follow your own lusts and desires and make it and be okay. 
you will be robbed. You will give up your life over lust for anything because the thief is coming to entice you and steal from you. So blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Amen. Father, we thank you for being our good shepherd. We thank you for being the one who graciously and in abundance and willingly gives us the wisdom, the understanding that we need that we may endure all things in this life. And we need not be those who are drawn away, who are enticed, who are led to that place of slaughter. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that you're convicting, that you're dealing with, Lord, just deal with them. Give them the courage to talk to somebody. Nothing that's hidden is ever dealt with. Nothing in the dark will ever set a person free. But it's as we confess our sins and repent and turn to you that you cleanse us of all unrighteousness.